And welcome back to another episode of Take This Job and Love It. This is a podcast from Yale's Office of Career Strategy, aimed at helping you through the various aspects of finding a job and building a career that you love. My name is Claire Zala, and I'm a junior in Yale College. I work with the Common Good and Creative Career team to support Yale students interested in pursuing careers that make a difference and encourage their creativity. Today, I'm joined on the podcast by Ambassador Jeffrey Pyatt. Um, Ambassador Pyatt has been the U.S. Ambassador to Greece since October 2016. Previously, he was the ambassador to Ukraine from 2013 to 2016, where he was awarded the State Department's Robert Fraser Memorial Award for his commitment to peace and alleviation of human suffering in eastern Ukraine. He received his master's degree in international relations from Yale in 1987. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today, Ambassador. Oh, thanks, Claire. Happy to do it. Thank you. Um, Ambassador, you've had an incredible career in the Foreign Service, serving everywhere from Honduras to India, Pakistan, Hong Kong, and Austria, and right here at home on the U.S. National Security Council. Was it always your plan to join the Foreign Service? And when you first joined, did you envision yourself where you are now? Um, let me answer the second question first, because that's easiest. Um, absolutely not. Uh, you know, I think I have... Um, surprised myself along the way. If you told me that I would have been the American ambassador in Greece or, or in Ukraine during the historic time that I was there, when I was hanging out on Hill House Avenue, I would have said, you're nuts. But uh, life comes at you fast. Um, for me, in terms of the Foreign Service, so by the time I got to Yale, I actually had a pretty good idea I wanted to do this. Um, I had done a State Department internship in the summer of 1984, um, working in the Latin America Bureau of the State Department in Washington. Um, I had, it was my first real foray into government, and like a lot of young people, uh, you know, I was majoring in political science. I had, I had read a lot of theory, but it was fascinating for me to see. Um, how the world of theory and academics differed from the world of practice and implementation. But what I really remember from that experience was how impressed I was by the, the quality of the people that the State Department had working for it, the Foreign Service officers, both their, their intellectual caliber, but also their extraordinary dedication to the work they were doing in the national interests of the United States. So I sort of finished up as an undergraduate, headed off to graduate school at Yale, with a pretty clear sense that I wanted to join the Foreign Service, join the State Department. Um, I had also looked at some other opportunities in government. There's the Back then there was, and there still is, the Presidential Management Intern Program, which is the department and the, the federal government's way of, of hiring future senior executives. Um, I'd looked at the intelligence community, um, but I was always pretty sure that what I really wanted to do with the, was the State Department. And actually, similar to you, I actually was a student trainee um, with the State Department as well and coached New Benin this summer. And the experience, while absolutely wonderful and life-changing, showed me that there's certainly a reason it's called the Foreign Service. Um, what have you found to be the biggest reward or challenge of your service? So the biggest reward is representing the people of the United States of America. Um, you know, it, it is, it's enormously humbling. And I, I had the opportunity, for instance, when I was in Hong Kong, and I was there for three years um, at an age when my, my kids were playing a lot of soccer with their, their fellow um, elementary and junior high school students. I hung out with a lot of people who were expatriate Americans, you know, working for 
telecommunications companies or banking firms or, or other things. And, and one of the things that really struck me from that experience in particular was realizing that I had all of these colleagues who by and large were getting paid more than I was, um, but they had a pretty predictable future in front of them. And you know their job was to work for their particular company and, and create value for their their employer. Um, in my case, you know I've had this extraordinary experience where, even from a relatively um, junior stage in my career, when you speak, you speak for America. You know I, I was a human rights officer in India in the early 1980s, uh, working in the political section there, and I can remember meeting with people who were victims of conflict or who were vulnerable for one reason or another, and just their profound gratitude at the fact that the United States, and it wasn't me, it was the fact that I was America, was taking an interest in their circumstances. And then certainly as ambassador um, in two important countries at, at historic periods of both of those relationships in Ukraine and, and now in Greece, you know, it still shocks and surprises me sometimes when um, people I, I've never met before, you know, waiters at restaurants or, or people on the street will come up to me and recognize me and say, Ambassador, um, you don't know who I am, but I just want to say thank you for what America has done to help my country. Um, that's a, an enormously humbling um, experience. It's also a big responsibility. Um, you know, I, if there's one thing that I have become convinced of over three decades as, a, as an American diplomat, it's that the United States remains an unmatched force for good in the world. Um, but we have to, um, you know, as they, they said to Luke Skywalker, use your powers for good. Um, and you have, especially as an American diplomat overseas, again, from a relatively um, early time in your career, you have the ability not always to get your way in terms of what policy you're recommending, but you have uh, a unique ability to shape policy and to, um, to impact what the United States government says and does much more immediately than would be possible, for instance, by working at a think tank or um, writing as an academic. Um, you know, those are all important roles but they are, they are removed from the levers of power. And, and I've had the opportunity you know, during my experience on the National Security Council staff or, or what I'm doing now to be involved in, in decision making at the senior most level of our government. And you learn both um, the challenges that that presents, but also, um, as I said, sort of how to use your powers for good. Mm. And I'd really love to tap into that idea of um, representing America and representing American interests, because like you alluded to, um, your tenure as ambassador in Greece and Ukraine has been marked by significant challenges and upheaval, such as migration issues in Greece and the Russian annexation of Crimea. Um, what is your personal approach to addressing such complex problems and making difficult decisions under pressure while representing American interests? Hundreds of millions of people have been lifted out of poverty. There are more people who have, have joined the global economy who have become consumers in the space of my professional lifetime than ever before in the totality of, of human history. Um, and it's, it's worth remembering that. Um, and then, you know, what we call globalization, the, the connectedness of everything. Um, and you see that in the headlines, you know, this week with the 
the reactions to coronavirus and how that's rippling across the global economy and air travel and, and everything else. Um, and so being sensitive to that international connectedness is, um, is a, a huge priority, it seems to me, regardless of whatever your career is going to be going forward and understanding how that connectedness is only accelerating now in, in part largely because of, of technology um, and how technology has, has empowered individuals. I, you know, I remain a huge technology optimist because I've seen through my time in Asia in particular and I've lived three years in China and seven years in India, two years in Pakistan. I think about how India changed between the first time I went there as a junior political officer in 1992 um, and when I was last in India, which would have been in my official capacity as a principal deputy assistant secretary of state in, in 2013, and just how, you know, how many hundreds of millions of Indians have been catapulted into the middle class, how um, village life and the assumptions of the way society works there have been upended by by the internet, by smartphones, by instantaneous available availability of information, and I, and I think we're we're just in the early days of understanding how that's going to change the way the economy works, the implications of of artificial intelligence, of big data, of um, spontaneous transmission of of information, and uh, instant transmission of inst information. So all of that is, is going to change the way the international system works and the, the kind of world that everybody grows up in. So being cognizant of that, here in India, or excuse me, here in Greece, um, we talk about the importance of cultivating this relationship with Greece as a pillar of regional stability. Greece is a country which for millennia, for thousands of years, has existed at the, um, the meeting point between uh, Europe, and that Europe today is a Europe of democracy, of tolerance, of uh, freedom of speech, of values, the, the meeting point between Europe and the great Eurasian landmass, and whether it was the, the conflicts that surrounded the age of Alexander the Great or the, the Battle of Salamis, which we're, we will commemorate the 2,500th anniversary of the defeat of the, the Persian fleet at the Battle of Salamis by the, by the Athenians. Um, you know that 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 collision of values and cultures goes on to this day, um, driven by geography. So building a strong relationship with a Greece that is democratic, emphatically democratic, which is a strong advocate of the the transatlantic U.S.-European relationship, uh, which has gone through an unprecedented economic crisis over the past decade, losing 25% of GDP but has come through that process with its democracy intact, with the extremes uh, of left and right marginalized, um, with, um, uh, with its commitment to the Euro-Atlantic community and European values reaffirmed is really important for American interests. So that's, that's our bumper sticker here. But more broadly, I mean, I, I think you know, it sort of derives again from this question, ask yourself, what am I trying to do? How are the actions that I'm taking connected to the strategic objectives that I've set? And if, if your actions aren't connected to those strategic objectives, then you should ask yourself, um, 
am I wasting my time? Am I am I spending my energies on things which advance the goals that I'm I'm trying to achieve and that my organization is trying to achieve? So it's really just keeping this grand strategy at the forefront of your mind and building your uh, decisions around that. Um, and actually, in continuing with this theme of technology, um, you were ambassador in Ukraine at this a very pivotal time in its history. Um, I'm thinking of the 2015 power grid cyber attack with Kildisk and Black Energy. Um, for, and we're living in a world that's constantly changing with new technology and new threats and new devices. Um, what advice would you give to students who are working in a, um, a workforce that's always changing and requires a lot of flexibility of thought and of action? Yeah, really good question. I mean, again, the, the first piece of advice I would provide is, is get international experience. You know, even if you're going to move home to St. Louis and, and work in the United States for the rest of your, your professional lifetime, um, having an appreciation of what the rest of the world looks like, um, how different it is, and how, how privileged we are in the United States in terms of our, our democracy, our standard of living, um, our prosperity, our entrepreneurial ecosystem, um, it can only help you. And um, I mean, I, I saw some of this, I think, through my, my, the, the eyes of my own kids, who I spent um, an unusually long stretch of time overseas. I was, I was overseas continuously uh, from 1997 until 2010. Um, so that was a little more than 13 years. So basically, my my kids that was their entire um, their entire childhood, um, often up until they went away to college. And it was so striking to me to see the difference between my kids and a lot of their peers at university, who were you know all smart and had come through the same competitive process of SATs and college entrance exams and everything else. But by and large, they tended to be, um, they tended to take much more for granted, and they tended to be um, less sensitive to how privileged we as Americans are than my kids were, who had spent a lot of their time in, in places like India and Pakistan and and, uh, and, and China that don't, um, where, where people don't take for granted the kind of things that we take for granted in the United States. So getting that international experience is is a huge advantage. Um, I think one of the um, one of the other lessons, and you know, for especially you know for you and your listeners who are engaged in the area of international affairs, uh, you know, geography still matters. And I, I know I'm contra contradicting myself here because I've just been talking about global connectivity and everything else. Um, but it's a big world, and um, there are a lot of stresses and strains on the the global system. Um, there are the obvious ones: uh, climate change, uh, contagious disease, um, the, uh, the 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 challenges of disparity of wealth. Um, there's also a phenomenon that um, again comes back to this the point about American privilege. You know, recognizing that um, the United States um, has enjoyed, uh, especially since the middle of the last century, a period of extraordinary prosperity and um, well-being for the vast majority of our citizens. 
Now you've got a lot of the rest of the world, and you can see this, for instance, in uh, life expectation figures, uh, where people earlier um, would not have expected to live to the, the ripe old age that they now enjoy, um, in part because of breakthroughs in technology and medicine. Um, but they also they also aspire to the same things that our our citizens have aspired to. Microwave ovens and color televisions and, and new iPhones. And what does it mean for the international system as these technologies and, and social expectations begin to proliferate across the globe? Um, what's the future of democracy? We, we haven't talked about that much, but I, but I think in terms of American interests, um, one of the one of the other things that you learn as an American diplomat serving in non-democratic places um, is how privileged we are to have a system of deeply institutionalized democratic accountability for our leaders and freedom of speech and the, the right to dissent um, and both what a, what a privilege that is but also what it looks like um, when those systems don't exist. and. Um, there is, especially now, we face a, cha a challenge with um, two great power rivals in the international system um, in the form of Russia and China, both of whom um, have emphatically non-democratic systems, and they are trying to project those alternative models. Um, in the case of China, it is, and the, in particular the Chinese Communist Party, it is a model of governance which is um, deeply authoritarian, which is empowered by algorithms and, and big data and, and universal surveillance um, to build a very different model of governance from what we, uh, what we think of uh, and what we take for granted in the United States. And then um, alternatively in Russia, which is a, a quite different culture and history, but another system um, and a leader in uh, President Putin who is trying to project um, an alternative model um, both of, of governance but also in terms of how society is organized and questioning the values that we in the Euro-Atlantic community take for granted, including things like tolerance um, and uh, freedom of speech and the right to oppose your government. So um, you know all of these all of these things are under stress. I, I think the one of the challenges you know for anybody graduating from Yale in the you know in a class of 20 or 2021 20, you know right after congratulations is to recognize um, the enormous uh, challenges that all you guys are going to have to work through in terms of how we manage these various stresses and strains. I think you'll do it in a in a different environment from what I grew up in, um, you know, for better or worse. I uh, I joined the Foreign Service in the dying days of the of the uh, of the Cold War. Um, I was actually in the State Department A100 class, the the Foreign Service trainee class, when the Berlin Wall came down. I, I remember exactly where I was as the news came across, and I I watched as the existential threat that the Soviet Union once posed to the United States um, rapidly fell apart. Um, we don't face that threat anymore, but um, it's a complicated world. Our economy, the U.S. economy, is is much more dependent on 
the prosperity of the rest of the world than it was at the time um, when I began uh, my professional career. So putting all those pieces together is going to be a, a fascinating challenge, um, but it's one that I know we're up to. And continuing this theme of just looking forward to the future, um, we're just about out of time, but I'd love to wrap up with the question, what are your hopes for the future? So what are my hopes? Peace, prosperity, um, you know, the good guys win. Um, I'm actually pretty optimistic about all of that. I, I wouldn't be a diplomat if I wasn't an optimist. I think if you're a, if you're a pessimist, you probably end up as a, as a hedge fund manager or something because you're trying to appeal to people's baser instincts. Um, I've seen over and over again that at the end of the day, you know, people, people want to be good. Um, and again, the, 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 the powerful catalytic role that the United States can play in helping to ensure that that our our values and our um, our our system of governance continues to be the model, you know, the shining city on the hill that the rest of the world looks to, but we can't take that for granted. Um, so we have to we we have to work every single day uh, to uphold our values, to recognize our adversaries and the challenges that they are trying to present to us, and, and I think. I've talked a little bit about both the China challenge and the Russia challenge as I see it, um, and also um, to to deal with these emergent challenges um, that we've only begun to scratch the surface of things like like climate change, um, like um, how we manage the the challenge of um, these rising expectations that I talked about, which which are empowered um, by technology, but then have to be fulfilled by governments. So, um, you know, all good things. And I, and I think the, the fascinating aspect to me about this period is going to be how does, um, how does the United States continue to bring our best game uh, to that, that effort? And I, as I said, I'm, I'm enormously proud of the work that the, the Foreign Service, the State Department does in our, our broader international affairs community. Um, I think one of the things that the United States does better than anybody else in the world is to bring together all the instruments of, of, of national power, so not just the military, but our economy, our culture. We haven't talked a lot about that, but the United States still has an incredibly powerful and attractive soft power, which derives from our culture and, and, and what it represents and the attractive model that it represents for so much of the rest of the world. Um, but we can't take it for granted. Um, because if we're not working every day to, to uphold that, um, our adversaries are going to undermine it and we're going to wake up one day and we won't be on top. Ambassador, thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time to speak with me today. This was excellent. Yeah, good talking and, and good luck to everybody. Thank you so much and have a wonderful rest of the day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Okay.